This is The Unseen, and I'm your host, Mike Cleland. This week on The Unseen, I'm happy to talk with Brett Oldham and his wife, Julie McVeigh Oldham. They recently published a book titled Afterlife Encounters, Ghosts, Spirits, and Near-Death Experiences. This is a collection of really cool really remarkable stories about the mystical events that surround death. Both Julie and Brett are paranormal investigators, and together they created this really wonderful book. I mean, there's no other way to say it. This is a really heartening, touching book. It's really uplifting. And I think that means a lot, given the subject matter of the book, which so many of us see as something so dark. I mean, yes, death involves grieving, and that's important. But also important is knowing that there's something much, much more to the story. Brett has had a lifetime of UFO contact, and these experiences, these sometimes very frightening experiences, have allowed for a deeper insight into death, which is, of course, the ultimate mystery. Our conversation dips in and out of this and other mysteries, including the UFO encounters, and there is an overlap within these seemingly divergent subjects. And and that was uh, pretty much the focus of this interview, how death seems to overlap with so much that can be tied back into um, human consciousness, deeper human consciousness. This audio interview was recorded in April of 2019. Please enjoy. Brett, Julie, I want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. Thank you for having us. Yeah, we appreciate it, Mike. Oh, I'm I'm delighted. I'm delighted to do this. And so I have been, over the last few weeks here, I have been reading bits and pieces of your book. Full disclosure, I have not read the entire thing. And it's really nice. It's a really wonderful book. It's a very positive, beautiful book set of stories and i and i was i was kind of craving that when i opened it well we tried to do that on purpose uh you know there's so much negative stuff that's associated with anything to do with the afterlife we're inundated with it on reality tv all these uh ghost sh- shows everything's a demon and uh you know they, they they have new shows out now that we've been seeing advertised and i just shake my head that you know ghost baits coming up and uh porter's still hell and all this stuff and you know, we've, I knew from my years of experience and Julie's, you know, she's studied a lot in this field and we knew that there's a lot of positive aspects that's not being addressed. And, um, everybody's kind of fallen into this, this Hollywood reality of it. And that's not the true reality. And so we wanted to, to put out a book that covered these kind of, uh, as you said, it's heartwarming stuff. It's very positive because not everything to do with the afterlife is, is negative entities. Right. And, and after interviewing so many people for this book, that's what we found. We found a lot of heartwarming stories, a lot of comforting stories that, that really resonated with the loved one that was being, that was receiving information from the other side. And was it mostly parents and children or siblings and, and, uh, or spouses? 
It was all across the board. Yeah, it was across the board. I mean, we had people talking about their friends coming mm-hmm. back. You know, we have a few stories in there about that. So it was pretty across the board. A lot of, with some mothers, some, uh, a lot of relatives, great aunts, great uncles, fathers. And you are both, um, I guess I hate, to, I mean, the term ghost hunter, that's a, is that appropriate? Um, well, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm kind of like with you on on that term as well, you know. You're kind of stuck with the, it, the con- but what, what do you, what would you, what's the term you like? The, the connotation of that just brings up some of the wrong images sometimes, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so what's the term you like? Um, um, just, just paranormal investigators in general, because there's such a wide spectrum to it. You know, I mean, I don't think people say they hunt ghosts, but in my experience, you know, we're surrounded by spirit and ghost all the time. And, uh, uh, yeah, we, we tried to set a difference between what ghosts and spirits are in this book. Whereas like, we believe that ghosts are, are, are like lost souls that get trapped in some sort of middle dimension after death. And, the reasons or there's a multitude of reasons. I mean, it could be fear. Uh, if their religious beliefs lead them this direction, it could be fear of hell. Uh, if they fully crossed over, uh, a lot of times it's a strong attachment to people, places, things in this world. And, and then they eventually realize that they're trapped and, and they either give up, uh, and want to be left alone. And sometimes they make a plea for the living. So a lot of hauntings are that they're just trying to get our attention, uh, for help, uh, in whichever way they can find, Whereas we think a spirit is a soul that's fully crossed over and they choose to return uh, for a short time. And we gave example after example in this book where they came to comfort a loved one, uh, sometimes warn a loved one. Uh, but most of the time they wanted to assure the living that they're all right. And, and sometimes it's just is simply to visit. And I've, you know, so you hear these stories and, and it's nice to have them in, a, in a one big collection like this. And um, just because you can kind of compare and contrast, you know, they're, they're not the same story, but they certainly have the same mood and the same vibe. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and that happened also. Uh, that's why we want to include a, a, a couple of ghost stories. And also uh, there's a multitude of, of spirit communication, um, you know, spirits coming back to the loved ones and near death experience, because that is also uh, an afterlife encounter. So the people who have these experiences, let's let's just talk about the near-death experiences. Do they talk about any sort of heightened um, psychic abilities after, or or a change in their spirituality, or a uh, or a new a new awareness? Let's say they do. They do. Um, I, I knew they did. I, I just was. I had to ask the question. That yes, yes. It was almost across the board. Uh, repeatedly, that happened. Right. And if someone uh, that had an NDE already had some abilities prior to the near-death experience, when they came back, those experiences or their uh, psychic abilities seem to have been enhanced by, by the NDE. So if they didn't have them before, they did. If they did have them, they were enhanced. And this ha- this shows up in other... I mean, this is a, the, the focus of my research has been on the UFO lore and this is something I found also is that people who have had psychic abilities oftentimes will get have a UFO contact and their psychic abilities will be enhanced. And I will tell you the people who have had both UFO contact and a near death experience are usually like off the charts in their psychic abilities. 
Yeah, I agree. Uh, uh, obviously, from from my experience as a, uh, an alien abductee, you know, I found that personally to be true. Uh, and also from the many people that I've dealt with and counseled and talked to over the years, uh, especially people that have been taken, uh, who I call lifers, you know, people that's been taken multiple times, no doubt about it. Um, and it shows up in different realms of psychic uh, enhanced psychic awareness, but, uh, you know, some, you know, maybe clear audience and maybe a medium, that type of thing. Some may be, uh, all of it, but it's always there. And that is a, a commonality that we found between uh, the near death experiences of pe- people who have had that experience and all, and with the alien abductees. Yeah. And I, and it's, it's interesting how many people I've actually met who've had both. Um, mm-hmm. yes. And I so here have either of you had experiences with a near death experience? No, no near death experience. No. Okay, just I was no. wondering. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, I would think you know the inspiration to do something like this, but you do have the the, the research into the paranormal lore. Hey, let's just what's if you want to share one of the stories from the book, that would be wonderful. Um, well, there's there's so many, it's hard to. Do you want to? We could start with an NDE. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. Okay. So we interviewed a lady who was undergoing just a routine knee surgery. Uh, she wasn't worried about it. She had had a couple of surgeries before. She was uh, anesthetized. And she said at that point, everything went dark. But then things changed and she noticed she could hear things and she could hear them saying, you know, the Um, her blood pressure, her blood, uh, her pulse rate is 200 beats a minute. And she noticed herself rising up toward the door frame and she could see her body on the table. Her eyes were closed, but she could see everything that was going on around her. And she said she saw one of the nurses run out of the room and she knew She had a sense of knowing that she wasn't going to get another doctor, that she was going to tell her daughter what was going on with her mother. And the lady, the the NDE, she, the NDE, or she said she could see, she had like x-ray vision. She could see down through the floors and she saw the nurse run in to tell her daughter that her mother was not, not well, not doing well. She went into cardiac arrest because she had a uh, arrhythmia condition that the doctors didn't know. Exactly. And she said she saw her daughter put her her face in her hands and start crying and start praying for her. And she said as soon as that happened, things kind of shifted again. And she found herself in a white mist. She said the mist enveloped her. And then she perceived and she described it as angelic beings. She said there were rows and rows of all these beings. And uh, and the beings stopped at what she felt was God's throne. She said she felt the presence of God as if he filled up all the space, as if God was the universe, as if God was everything. And, um, she said if she had had a body, she would have fallen to her knees. She was so humbled. She wanted to, 
wanted to ask to come back because she felt like she still had things to do. And she said she got the courage up to ask God, can I return? I want to help people. And she said the next thing she knew, she was back in the body. She woke up 24 hours later in, in intensive care, and she stayed in intensive care for eight days after that. But it was a really incredible story. And and how did her life change after that? Well, she um, she actually ended up writing a book, something that she had had didn't even know how to work the software uh, and to do it, but she felt strongly compelled to do that. She also had an awakening, I think, as an empath. Uh, she started feeling um, kind of energies around people. Yeah, so she started like counseling people. She her once again, her psychic awareness was greatly enhanced and she would start picking up these things about people and she knew that she could uh, help them. She started a radio show, uh, you know, dealing with all aspects of the paranormal, which she's still currently doing. Um, Oh, and what's her name? uh, Deborah Jane East. Okay. Interesting. Great. Yeah. Everybody, you know, if you could look her up and, you know, she pretty much dedicated herself to, doing what she could to find uh, more truths about uh, about what happens when we die. And also she really became interested in the UFO phenomena mm-hmm. because she saw the parallel between the two as well. In fact, she had mentioned uh, just what you did earlier about the uh, so many experiencers that she had talked to also had near-death experiences. So she she kind of backed that up as well. And that's that to me, that's just remarkable because, I, I mean, how many people – like when you statistically, how many people really have a near-death experience? I mean, it must be a very, I don't have, I couldn't even begin to guess, but I suspect the percentage is very low. And then the same thing, how many people actually have UFO contact experiences? I mean, obviously right. a lot of people are having mm-hmm. these, but the, the, the overall percentage of our population must be really low. And to have right. both of them. Yeah, it would have, be really low. And, yeah. and you know, the congruencies don't really end there because what we've also found is like these people that had these uh, NDEs, uh, when they came back, they they sort of got, they, they shied away from organized dogmatic religion and um, they became more spiritual. And that's sort of the same thing that happens to a lot of experiencers. Like your, their, your whole perception of, of religion changes, as does your perception of the earth itself. And, and the care for the earth and the environment mm-hmm. and animals. And, and that, that was almost the same way with, uh, with people who had the NDEs. So there's, there's these commonalities that's really intriguing. And I'm sure there's so I'll I'll talk about it a little bit more in the in the next segment. But there's a there's a story I want to share as far as like uh, that sums up this overlap in a little bit. What about healing abilities? Do people come back with any kind of healing abilities? This is something I found in my own UFO research. There were several that have gotten into Reiki energy healing. Um, we had a couple, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it, whether it be, uh, you know, sort of like the energy healing thing um, or into counseling type thing, you know, they, they sort of became that uh, level of healing where, you know, would be not so much like abilities, you know, where they could miraculously heal somebody, but they, they would use these different modalities of healing Sure. Oh, yeah. This and this is this is exactly what I have been finding in my in my own UFO research. Hey, we are going to talk a little bit more after this short break. Um, we are at the fifteen minute mark, and for non-members. 
There will be a few commercials, but for members, we will be right back. Welcome back to the free Dreamland segment. We are speaking with Brett and Julie about their new book, Afterlife Encounters. Hey, just before the break, I brought up something, and I want to bring it up now. Do you know Ray Hernandez? Uh, I don't know him personally, but I, I know, of course, who his name is. Great. What well, I've met him a few is. times, and he's, yeah. a, he's a very energetic guy, let me tell you. And and he has started an organization that is doing research into experiences, mostly. And it's it started out as like a UFO thing, and then they just went all over the map and got connected to all kinds of things. So he's very clear that it is not a UFO investigating organization. But he had an experience. He lives in Miami, driving in his car, making a left turn in traffic, listening to a, like a audio thing on the radio. And then all of a sudden, click, he's like in this completely other realm. And he has this magnificent, hyper real, vivid experience of like seeing a giant Ferris wheel, right? It's like a huge, giant turning wheel. You know, so there's an axle and then there's these spokes. And then there, at the end of the spokes is the wheel. And each little spoke has like a different word written on it. In one, and, I, and I have them listed here. I went to his site just before we uh, started our talk here. And one of the things says UFO contact. And one of the giant spokes says out-of-body experience. And another one says lucid dreams, mystical meditation, remote viewing, shamanic journeying, channeling, spirit guides, and the near-death experience. And so these things are all turning. And then he goes to the hub, to the axle, to the core and he gets the this intense knowing that the core is human consciousness and then click he's like finishing his left turn the he felt like he was gone 20 minutes he's like, all of a sudden he's finishing his left turn the radio is playing the exact same thing that it had been what felt like 20 minutes earlier and and he's like left with this cinematic download of all of these connected things that and I sense that too obviously they're not the same thing but they have an overlap and a flavor and a, and a kind of tone to them that they all somehow seem connected. And that's a nice way for me to visualize it, right? So they're each a separate spoke, but they all connect to the same hub. Yeah, it is. And, and we found out because we actually uh, touched on, uh, on OBEs as well because we did find some similarities between um, certain people having uh, out-of-body experiences that correlated with near-death experience, although they didn't physically die so there there does seem to be this um consciousness overlap in, in a lot of these things uh and that isn't you know an interesting way that he saw it it kind of reminded me of you know grant cameron's um downloads when you said download you know i was thinking that before you said it because that it kind of reminded me of those kind of uh uh things that happen where people just get these instant downloads that grant ta often talks about and we, we wonder, you know, where they come from. And it even reminded me of of one of my experiences, uh, you know, just briefly touching on the abduction thing where I had I had asked a, a tall gray one time uh, during one of my experiences who his God was. And he uh, without hesitation, he answered telepathically, we are all one with the one who is all. And you know, I think that sort of ties in with the centerpiece of of the consciousness that Ray was talking about. Um, that, that it all, it all is the all encompassing everything. And these are all just spokes That's... of consciousness off that. And, and I want to bring something up, Brett, you and I talked a little bit 
not much, before doing this interview. And um, you told me you have chosen to step away from the UFO scene. And, and I've read both your other books. And those are tough books. Those are heavy and oppressive. And there's a, there's a side of the UFO field which is very much love and light and beautiful, angelic, magical wonderfulness in a way. And then there's some stuff that is very tough and hard for me to it's, there's a dark side to this too. And, um, and I know a lot of people, they want to only look at the love and light side and deny or ignore the dark stuff. So I'll just, let me just say, I understand fully your reasons to choose to step away. And, um, and that was part of the reason I was that I, when I said it earlier at the beginning of this talk, I was so delighted that this book is, is so life affirming in many ways. Um, yeah, I mean, I wanted to, I, I had to step away. Uh, I, I may step away permanently and I may not, you know, but right now I'm at a place in life that, um, that I felt I needed to. And, and I've kind of been on a hiatus for several months now, turned down a lot of stuff. Um, there's a multitude of reasons for it, but I found, um, that it was nice to be able to focus on a different aspect of this. I found a lot of tie-ins. Uh, you know, there's a dimensional aspect um, to the abduction phenomena. Um, I believe that, you know, we are, we are definitely being taken through these uh, portals. I think that uh, is one of the reasons that we have the change uh, going, just be going through these portals, because I think that's what's happening to these people that's having these near-death experiences. Some of them describe the tunnels. Um, not everybody. Some described way stations. Yeah. Um, like there was a point of no return type thing, and they were at that way station. Yeah. And, and so, you know, there's there's definite, definite dimensional aspects to both. And I think that does have something to do uh, w with, with these things tying in. But I had, because uh, many abductees have, especially after their experiences, they have uh, a lot of paranormal activity start up. And that's exactly what happened to me and, and how I got so interested in it at a very early age and uh, started seeking answers for that before I even knew the tie in. But I think, but I think that what happens is that our energy, uh, I think we start vibrating at a, at a faster rate. And I think the same thing happens with the people that go through an NDE because of the dimensional aspect of it. And we sort of become a magnet for, uh, those in, uh, you know, through the veil, because I think the veil is very thin. A lot of the activity that we uh, attract, it's not negative. You know, I mean, I've spent a lot of years uh, before I ever went public with my abduction stories in the paranormal field. Uh, and b basically because, you know, I have this ability to, uh, which I don't have never really advertised. Uh, you know, I, I do have some mediumship ability. I've, I've, really attract electronic voice phenomena. Uh, and I've used that to uh, my whole goal for coming out publicly with abduction and in the paranormal realm has been to help those here and those have the other people that's having these experiences. And that's one of the reasons that we wanted to do this book was to to show, like we said earlier, that not everything uh, is dark. And it's the same thing with the abduction field. You know, there is both elements to it. Uh, and, it, and in the end, it depends on how you handle it mentally and physically, uh, how you're going to let it affect you. And, and that's one of the things that I tried to do in my second book was to give a lot of coping mechanisms in that book for other people that's had negative experiences with it. 
Um, and this is the same thing with, that, we, that we wanted to do with, with Afterlife Encounters was to leave people, uh, at least help alleviate some of the fear that goes along with all this. Yeah, and I and in your first book, your your sort of memoir of your experiences, I remember that was a very, I was very struck by the fact that you you were said you you were sort of a magnet in the in the ghost investigations that you were genuinely tapped into that stuff in a way that the the other people around you weren't. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, those people that's uh, there's certain people that I've worked with throughout the years, you know, and they'll attest to that. You know, I can go in somewhere, and I'm not trying to. To say this in a bragging sort of way, it just it just is, uh, and and I'll come out with you know four to five times the amount of electronic voice phenomena that I've recorded than anybody else in the group, uh, and I just think it all stems back to my to my abduction experiences because I found that time and time again with other people. You know, we've had uh, I mean Julie's witnessed things. Um, you know, we 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 wrote about a couple of our own personal experiences in the book and. Um, and I, I think that uh, it was important to know, like, we're not just writing about this, but we've lived some of this stuff. Well, give, here, give an example of one of those experiences. Do you do your grandmother? Um, yeah, but you also the restaurant. Irene, mm. too. Well, this one wasn't in the book, but this one was really interesting, too. We went to a restaurant. Um, oh, about six to eight months ago, and. Immediately, I can always tell when he's hearing something or tuning into something. He has a look on his face, uh, kind of a faraway look. And I was like, I said, what, what's going on? And he was having an interchange with a woman named Irene who had frequented the restaurant, who liked the building, who liked to be around, who liked to see people happy and who liked to socialize. Um, so you had a little bit of a conversation with her before she went on to to go to other tables, yeah, so the that building, was the building had been around. We didn't know it at the time, but it had been uh, a lot of different things. A lot of different things, but at, at, the, at that area, I believe that she had had came back when it was sort of like a soda shop type thing for young people, you know. And she had fond memories of that, you know. But we had another incident that we that happened uh, when we were, were here at the house um, with uh, with Julie's grandmother. And we were just uh, sitting in the den and talking and um, Julie kind of was was sort of laying and I was sitting looking straight uh, out and she had her back to the nearby door frame. And out of nowhere, like I see this uh, this woman um, who looked real peek around the corner and then peek back and. You know, you asked me, I said, what are you looking at? And I told her, I just, I, I, I saw somebody, I saw, I saw somebody. In, and so we jumped up cause we thought somebody had broke into the house. Uh, and we, we went around, looked everywhere, couldn't find, I mean, everything was secure. So I started describing, um, the lady that I had seen and, um, we tried to reenact it. I mean, I always try to debunk everything that happens, which is the wise thing to do for, for any of this stuff. And Sure. The simplest explanation, if you can get that out of the way. And, yeah. And just, yeah, exactly. I agree. And and um, so I, I was like I asked Julie, I says, well, here's you know how she did. I kind of showed her and I said, can you reenact it? And let me see what it looks like. And when you're when you're doing it and maybe we can get a 
at least find out her size and, you know, that type of thing like that. So she did it. And I sat back in the same spot I was at. And when, as Julie went kind of peeked around the corner like that, I noticed a striking resemblance in profiles. And I was like, well, that's really weird. I said, the lady I saw, um, and, and she looked young. I mean, she looked like in her prime, like, you know, 35 or something. And, uh, and had short dark hair. And I even, you know, described what color of blouse that she had on. And I said, uh, man, that's really weird. Her, her profile looked a lot like yours. And she says, well, how tall was she? And so we measured Julie at the, on the doorframe. And I said, no, nah, she, she wasn't as tall as you. She was shorter, this lady I saw. And uh, so the only thing I could think of was that um, it had to be, you know, some kind of uh, spirit visitation, except that this house has no history of that. And you, you had never had anything happen in here. Yeah. Um, she was living here before we got married. Um, and I had never, I, I've, I've been able to feel energy and I've never, I never felt anything in here at all. Uh, so we were like really puzzled by that. And then Julie left the room and she comes back and um, you, you showed me a picture and she said, did it look like her, this lady? And I looked at it and I said, yeah, that's her. That's that, that, and and she says, well, that's my grandmother. And uh, this is when, a picture of her when she was younger. Because what had been happening before that, uh, you want to talk yeah. about your brother had visited. Yeah, my brother had visited there where where they lived. And the home and the the, the surrounding had, had kind of fallen in disrepair. And I had just been really missing her. Uh, lately at that point, and I had even dreamed about her uh, a couple of times. So I had really been missing her a lot. And we felt that she came to comfort me. And the interesting thing about that visit was the visit was on the day it was her birthday. And, and I told Brett after all that, I said, you know what, today was her birthday. So she chose her birthday to show up for me to tell me I see you I'm with you I'm with you I'm still here so it was really really comforting actually uh, this, that is very comforting that is very comforting it's very lovely and I, it's I think we I think we live in a world where these stories are relegated to myth you know myth if you look in the dictionary is like it means fake it means false like a fairy tale like it's not real but there's this kind of i think i think we as people are adrift if we don't if we don't trust and take on these these mythic or paranormal things at least to just you know you don't have to believe them necessarily but just feel the feelings that arise from them if that makes sense exactly yeah i mean we're not if we would just open up our awareness more there's just multitudes of synchronistic events that happen to people, but we get so wrapped up on, I think, in our everyday busy lives. And, 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 and like, like I said earlier, people are a little afraid of this because that's sort of what we're taught, you know, from, from childhood, the ghost is something to be afraid of. Or, or if you, if you hear, you know, your grandfather speaking to you after he's passed, then, then maybe it's demonic or you're just hearing something or there's something wrong with you or, you know, all these things, that we hear about this, but you know, we interviewed a multitude of people and they were all, they're all from different 
ages, different sexes, different walks of life. Um, it didn't really matter regardless of gender, race, culture, or religious beliefs. People are having these type of experiences. That is wonderful. Hey, we're going to have to take our second break. And for now, we're going to have to say goodbye to the free Dreamlanders. We've reached the end of the uh, free part of the interview. And for non-members, thank you so much. Members, we'll be right back. We are back with Brett and Julie Oldham. And before we took the break, we were talking about the fact that these things, you know, I honestly think that most people have had, even if not a full-blown powerful experience, at least a touch of these things. How to say it? You know, the angels have just caressed some little part of them and they noticed it. So I feel strongly that's true of pretty much everyone. And the people who who may not have had the real experience, certainly know people that they trust and can talk to them and heard these stories. So, I mean, there's, so, is... there's so many people like that and they're afraid to tell anybody, you know, I've did uh, presentations and uh, before I started doing any kind of talks on the UFO phenomenon, I was doing stuff on this, uh, on spirit communication. And, and uh, there you would just, like, I would during these presentations, you know, ask people to raise their hand if they've had an experience and it would be 85% of the people would raise their hand. I, yeah. That's my sense. And, yeah. And a lot of people, uh, after the talk would come up to you and, and say, you know, my husband would kill me for telling you this. If he knew I was telling you this, that kind of thing. Uh, and then they would tell me this great, remarkable story. Um, and women are a little more apt and open to it. Uh, I think than. um, than men. Sure. I think women are better communicators. Yeah. I, that, yeah. that makes perfect sense. But, but, uh, you know, that's changing somewhat, I think, cause we, we are, we were pretty, wouldn't you say it was pretty, pretty equal men and women yeah. in the book, you know, but yeah, I think it's just a matter of, uh, I think you're hundred percent right that there's a high percentage of people having these experiences and they really don't know how to deal with them. Here, I'll share one now. Um, my mother died. This is going back in 2013. It was the summertime. Now, she had been in hospice care. She was suffering terribly from Alzheimer's. It was, it, was, it was crushing for my brother, sister, and myself. My dad had died a year earlier, and my mom spent the last year of her life not knowing that, that my father, her husband, had died. She simply would ask where he was, and, and, oh, man. and it was really sad. Heartbreaking. I'm at my house in Idaho. My mother was living in North Carolina, very close to my sister. It's summertime, and what happens in the summer, it's real hot where I live in the summer, but it's dry. And, and at night, when the sun goes down, you just open up the doors and windows. And I mean, you really open them up. No need screens. I was at high elevation. There's no bugs really that would come in the house. And so I'm sitting there at the desk. I'm just typing away and doing whatnot on the computer, and I hear this noise in the kitchen. And from where I was sitting at my desk, I could kind of turn my head a little bit, and I could look in the kitchen, and there was a ferret in the middle of the kitchen floor. You know, so I got up and my fear was that it was going to run into the house and it was going to get under the couch. And I was like, so I like walked into the kitchen. Now this is like white linoleum floor. This is fluorescent lights overhead. And so it was totally lit. I'm looking down at this thing. It is like three feet away from my toes. Mm. And I look at this thing and it's, you know, ferret is a member of the mink family, right? So you're, it's like, mm -hmm. it looks so silky smooth and it's, and it looks up at me with these big, cute, wet eyes. And I, and I say to it, you can't be here. You need to leave. And the ferret looks at me and it hops out onto the porch. And then I walk out to the porch and this is where we have our real stare down. And we just <laughs> stare at each other and it is so adorable. It is this beautiful, radiant creature. And then after a little bit, maybe a minute, it like 
hops off into the darkness and, and I hear it going off into the bushes. And I thought to myself, my God, like I, like that's, so I actually went online and tried to figure out what kind of ferret it was. I had a clear view of it. I looked online for illustrations a minute after I had seen it walk off into the bushes. And the only thing that matched was what's called a black-footed ferret. Now, a black-footed ferret was thought to be extinct until the early 1980s. They found a remnant population in Colorado and Wyoming. Hmm. And that is what I felt I saw. I feel absolutely certain that's what I saw. Anyway, so I went, I called, I called around later. I called around the, the veterinarians and said, did anyone have a pet ferret that escaped? I'm like, nope, nope. So, so that night I went to bed. I got up early, which is unusual for me. So I got up around six, which I hardly ever do. And I went to my email and I opened it up and my brother said, Mike, call me right away. It's about mom. And I called up and she had an aneurysm and she was unconscious. And I had the talk with my brother and my brother had talked to the doctors and I was like, okay, I'm, I'll fly out. And I basically, I said the thing, do I need a suit? Do I need to bring my suit? And he, my brother said, yeah. So the, she was not expected to regain consciousness. And then I, um, I mean, so, you know, I, I held my mom's hand when she passed. It was two days later. It was, a, my sister was there. My brother wasn't in the room and it was a really important experience as like me as a human on this earth like i experienced something so vital i i could release my mom and it wasn't sad she had been in a, a very frightening place for the last year of her life now i said to this ferret in my kitchen you can't be here you need to leave that would have been about 9.30 at night in Idaho. That would have been about 11.30 at night in North Carolina. Like I feel, like in my heart, I feel like I, without knowing it, spoke those words to my mom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so the, the the timing and, and the the rarity of the, of the ferret, um, you know. Those, and, the, those... and the absolute just calmness of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't, this was not a wild animal in my, right. in my kitchen floor. Right. right. Yeah. And that's the kind of, that's the kind of events that, see, you were aware. Um, and because what happens is people, um, especially like we have a story about a, a, a one of the guys that had an NDE and he was in a coma and it's like that they are sort of once one foot in this world and one foot in the next. And I, I think that um, they can use, they can and will use whatever means possible to communicate and, and do it so in such a profound way um, that you know, you know, that, that, that that's, you can put those two, they can tie it all together. Uh, you know, oh, well, this has to be, what, what this defies the odds. This has to be them in, in, in some way, you know, and, and I find, you know, personally, I find that kind of stuff like comforting. Mm-hmm. Oh, it was remarkably comforting to me. Yeah. Remarkably. Yeah. yeah. Un- unquestionably. You talked about a story of fellow Mike and I, I would love to hear that story. I would love to hear you share that story. Yeah, it was, um, a, a gentleman that, that I've known for, um, several years. And I'll just interject real quickly, you know, uh, the people that we 
interviewed for this book, um, we all we had some sort of personal association with all of them, and, and uh, even though some of them are in, a, in some different countries. Um, so it wasn't just random people like making up some sensational stories for attention. So even though there's a there's a lot of different stories in there, you know, these people, um, you know, they're they're people that we could personally um, vouch for uh, on these stories. And Mike um, is somebody that uh, I really respect. And and he, he he's like he, he uh, actually became a paranormal investigator because of this experience. But he his dad got cancer. Uh, it's, it's sort of a, a little bit of a long chapter. So I'll try to to shorten it what I can, but his dad got cancer and he was in hospice care, but at home and he had, uh, went into a coma and, um, the, the hospice workers had said, you know, he, he probably won't, won't last the night, won't last the night. And Mike, uh, his mother said that, um, he, she will sit with him and he went on to bed and uh, somewhere during the, the course of the night, the dad took his last breath and the mom stayed with the body for about 30 minutes uh, and just grieving. And then she decided that she would she would wake Mike. I believe, if I remember correctly, that uh, when she started to leave the room. He, the, he, woke, he, he woke up. He, he woke up and he said where are you going? And that type of thing. And he started talking to her. Um, and this is a guy that had been in a coma for several days. And, you know, he started talking to her and he started talking about, um, it was just like I had, had mentioned just a few minutes ago where he seemed to still be a little bit on the other side and a little bit here. And he had been previously married, uh, to a Japanese woman and he started speaking in Japanese, uh, to that woman who, his first wife on the other side and she was communicating to his wife now and thanking her for taking care of him and being a good wife to him and saying that she would be helping him on the other side. And he also started talking about that. He had been talking to some Vietnam soldiers that he had served with and other relatives. He also had prefaced, all of this by saying he had asked them and he called them them that he could come back mm -hmm. and tell them goodbye and tell them that he was okay. Yes. Now, did, here, I just have to interrupt it. Did, did she like check his pulse? Was he like clinically dead to her, to the best of her knowledge? To the best of her knowledge, he was clinically dead for about 30 minutes. My word. And uh, so I believe when she went to get Mike, that when he came back, he the dad had actually no no she told uh, sorry there's so many stories it's hard to remember. remember oh, I know I know just everyone. what you're going through. <laughs> that, he that, wanted to take a shower. He, he, he said before you wake Mike, let me let me get cleaned up, and he actually got out of bed, which he had <clears throat> hadn't done in weeks months. Yeah, he'd been bedridden for quite a while, and um, went to take a shower, got cleaned up. He actually took a shower. Yeah, on his own. Like he had this newfound strength. Uh, it was just, you know, absolutely remarkable. And so then uh, Mike, who was telling us the story, said when his mom come to wake him up that he thought 
that she was just coming to tell tell him that his dad had passed. Uh, and he was just absolutely shocked to find his dad like uh, in, in his the, own bed. In his own, he, yeah, he got up out of a hospice bed and he, and he went to his own bed and uh, then he said he was hungry. <laughs> and so he sent Mike to the grocery store to, to, uh, to get, you know, he some, some of his favorite foods or whatever. And, and so. And he hadn't eaten solid foods in, in weeks. And so they, Mike uh, said when he got back from the grocery store, his dad was up in the kitchen and like helping to prepare the meal. And it, him, him and his mom were just like beside themselves. Like, how is this happening? But of course they were, they were happy about it. And uh, he had rented a movie when he went to get groceries. And so he said they had a nice meal and um, they watched a movie. And then his dad said he was tired. He didn't want to go back in the hospice bed. He went back to his bedroom and uh, or, so they were looking at old photo albums and he said his dad was apologizing basically for everything he felt that he had done wrong. Um, there was little things like he had apologized to Mike for not letting him ever use his tools or teaching him how to fix a car or anything like that. And, uh, you know, they were sort of making amends. Um, and then he, he says, well, I, I have to go back, but I'm not sure what I, when I'm how, supposed how to. How it works. Yeah. He goes, I'm not sure how it works. Like his dad knew that, he had been given this one more day type thing. So Mike said him and his mother just said, I guess just go to sleep and, and wait for them to come for you again. And so that's what they did. And uh, it didn't happen again the second time, right? A few hours later, they hear him say, hello, hello. And they go back in there and he's wondering why he's still here. And, um, and obviously none of them know how this, how this works. But I think it was that same day, a few hours later, that he did lapse into a coma uh, for the second time. And well, the, the hospice workers had came over in the interim and were upset. They were asking, how did he get into his his own bed? And they scolded Mike and his mother and they, they, they were trying to tell them, no, he got up on his own accord, you know, and I don't think they believed him. And uh, they got him in a wheelchair and got him back into the hospice bed. And then uh, he because he had slipped back into a coma again. And then he finally like uh, he also told them that he would uh, send them messages from the other side. Um, and then he did die again a second time um, shortly thereafter, like Julia just stated. And and it wasn't long after that that uh, they they were looking for the stuff, though. But Mike said it was sometimes it was simple stuff like when they took his body out, um, there was a, a there it had been raining and a rain, but a sun came out and a rainbow showed up and and uh, but there was more specific stuff where um, they started seeing cardinals uh, show up every day at the time um, the same the, the time that he died the time that, uh, that he had died and that cardinal was his favorite bird and then once they acknowledged that then the bird quit showing up and then another time. Uh, and Mike was an only child. He was making dinner for his mom. And he asked his mom, he said, do you want to, they had a jukebox in their house. And he said, do you want to uh, listen to, uh, let me turn on the jukebox, listen to some music while I'm making dinner. Or do you, and she goes, no, I'm just going to turn on the TV and watch the news. And he said, okay. And he's in the kitchen and he says, all of a sudden he hears like this music blaring. And he thought his mom had changed her mind. And he walked in there and his mom says, 
hey, why did you turn the jukebox on? He says, well, I didn't. And she says, well, I didn't either. And he went to check the jukebox, turn it off. And he says it wasn't even plugged in. And oh, I love this stuff. As he love this stuff. Yeah. As he as he's standing there, then it slowly. He says, you know, the the old forty five, uh, just everything just kind of dies down. You know, the record gets spinning slower and slower, and then the whole thing just dies down and stops. And he said the song that was playing with Garth Brooks, uh, "If Tomorrow Never Comes." <clears throat> so they for sure considered that another message from from his father. And then he had one more like really remarkable thing happen. He was. Across town, and he lives in uh, in the Nashville, Tennessee area. And he says he hears his dad's voice in his head. And first he thought, "Well, you know what's what's happening here." And, and he smelled his, his cigar cigar smoke too. The, yes. the, and it, it was the flavor of cigar that his dad liked. And so he hears his dad's voice telling him, uh, "You have to go to this uh, Asian." supermarket grocery market and get this particular kind of cuttlefish and he he's he's i guess didn't really want it. he's like well it's clear across town he goes i'll get it i'll go back and he goes no you have to get it now and he he said it sounded so much you know like his dad and everything that he's like okay his dad was so animate about it and so he turns around and he starts going across town and he goes back to this market and he finds uh, this dried fish and he go. he decides uh, they didn't have a lot of it, but he, he decided just to get it all. And the cashier says, I'm sorry, sir, you can't buy all that. It's on special order for a, a longtime customer. And Mike says he knew it had to be his dad that he that they were talking about. And he pulled out his wallet and he showed him a photo. He says, is it this man here? And she says, yes, it is. And he's been waiting a long time for this order. He says, well, that's my father. And he's uh, passed away. And this was on uh, this was during the holidays. It was on Christmas. I forgot to add that little element to it. So she agreed to sell Mike all of the the, uh, cuttlefish that they had. And as he's driving home, because Mike actually loved it like his dad did, he says he hears his dad one last time. He says, Merry Christmas to you and your mom. I know. Just I sat here the whole time he told that story with a big smile on my face. Yeah, yeah. I, this is really, I mean, I'm totally heartened by these kind of stories. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sappy in that way. And I just, but so thank you. That was really great. And thank you for the book, too. Well, it was a pleasure writing it. We we both, I think, really enjoyed it. Uh, you know, as you know, writing a book's a, a lot of work. But oh my uh, god, yeah. <laughs> but but this one, um, you know, it was really a joy to write write for us because I think we felt the same way hearing these stories uh, over and over and over. And there's so many of them in there. No matter what kind of story it was or who it was coming from, uh, it, it made us smile and it, and it felt good. And uh, we know. And that what all the people, especially the near death experience people, wanted everybody to know the end is not the end. And that if, if we need one lesson, that's it. Hey, you know, we've we got time for if you want to tell one more story, that would be great. But I just want to say one thing. My friend Suzanne Chancellor shows up in your book and I didn't know she was in there. And she actually told stories that I had never heard her tell me before. 
And it, there's a funny little thing. And so anyway, I'm reading the book and I've jumped around. I have not completed the book. And I did the thing that I'm guilty of doing where I kind of read it all over the place and just start in the middle and read chapters. And there's this woman, Suzanne, and she's like, well, this is a really remarkable story. And this is, and her partner is named Jack. I'm like, the chances of that. And then, then, and then like, uh, she's a hairdresser. And then I'm like, wait a minute. This is my friend. So, yes, yeah, so I know exactly what you mean where there's this. And that's the same thing sort of happened with some mm-hmm. of my books where, like, I mm-hmm. was dependent on my friends in this funny little field we're both in. You know, I was dependent on them to, like, share their stories with me. So when I look back at my own book and when I look at your book and I can kind of sense that, like, well, there's this this little camaraderie that's needs to be documented. And, it, and your book was a delight. So. Hey, if you have one more story before we go, that would be wonderful. I think our listeners would love hearing one more. We had one more near-death experience story. Um, This man was in the military, and he was on a kind of a transport train, for lack of a better word, going out to the desert in California for some... um, Training. Training. Yeah, training purposes. And uh, he kept smelling, um, was it carbon monoxide? Some kind of gaseous smell. Some type of gaseous smell that made him very, very sick. And when they finally got to to their destination, he was treated... um, He was treated with some compazine for the nausea, and he went into a full cardiac arrest. Well, they had made him stand. They made the soldiers stand in these train cars. Oh, yeah. And it, where it was blowing in was he, he couldn't move away from it. Like he was breathing this for hours during the transport. Right. And he, he had a really, really bad headache. Uh, and he was feeling really nauseous and stuff, you know, so he went to get medical attention when they when they finally landed, not landed, but got to their destination. <clears throat> And he had a an injection of compazine, which immediately sent him into cardiac arrest. They got him back, um, to which I believe he had a couple more doses of compazine because they didn't know that he was allergic to compazine. He continued. He obviously had cardiac arrest a couple more times. Um, his experience was really interesting. He. Um, he said his was kind of a metaphysical experience. He felt he was one, one with the universe. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he that's only said way he said he could describe it, that he felt he was like one with the universe, like, you know, a part of a part of everything. Of everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he described it as mine was more of a metaphysical experience. So that one was really interesting too, because it, it was a little different than some of the others. But he was very comforted. He lost his fear of death. Of He said he felt, and this is a repeated thing, too, that they felt a love so strong that they couldn't even describe it. It was uh, the most intense, all-encompassing love uh, when they got to this realm on the other side. And he said he felt the same thing. And a, a lot of the others did as well, where they they become detached to the to, physical to world. To the physical world and all material things we're irrelevant anymore. And you know, that includes time and, and the, your sense of body. Yeah. Oh yeah. I've heard this many times. Right. Yeah. And this is, and I'm coming from this talking to people who've had both the UFO mm-hmm. and the near death experience. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that kept him, the only thing that motivated him to return to his physical body was his wife and he had a new baby. Mm-hmm. And 
that was what motivated him to return to his physical body. What we found from all of these near-death experiencers was a desire to not return to the physical body. Mm-hmm. I've heard this before too. Yeah. I wanted fact, to stay. Yeah. In fact, a almost resolute, I, I don't want to go back. I'm, I'm where I want to be. And, and they, they, and it was interesting too, because not everybody met up with the same type of beings on the other side. It's almost like their own perception of, of the people or the, the entities that they, you know, like Deborah, uh, had the angelic beings, what she perceived as angelic but, uh, beings. Other people said light beings. We had one that described it as light beings. And they all spoke telepathically, which is another similarity between abductees. You know, most uh, species that uh, people who encounter are, are speaking telepathically. This was the case uh, also with the beings that people that had these near-death experiences when they would come in contact Everything was telepathically. Another described uh, the being as an authoritative voice that was telepathic. Yes, thank you. These are wonderful stories, and I'm and I'm very genuinely grateful that you put this book out. Brett and Julie Oldham, the book is Afterlife Encounters. And how would we find this book? Uh, it's available on Amazon, uh, both in paperback form and uh, and the Kindle version. Afterlife Encounters: Ghost Spirits and Near Death Experiences. Thank you so much. This has been a delight, and, I, and I'm sure the listeners are going to enjoy this, too. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, Mike. you. I am going to read an excerpt from Brett and Julie Oldham's book, The Afterlife Encounters. This is from the last page. These encounters change people's lives in a positive way. The spirits of those who have gone before us have much to teach us, if we are willing to listen. They want us to know that consciousness continues after death. We detach from things in our material world when we cross over, so the love for those things is meaningless, and, in fact, could keep us from progressing in our soul's journey. They want us to know that love transcends death, and is a bond that cannot be broken. From these accounts, we have learned that the fear of death is an unfounded fear. There is nothing to fear about death, because, in essence, there is no real death. It is merely energy transitioning from one form to another. It is indeed the afterlife, a continuation of life, and a new beginning. The end is not the end. I would like to take this moment here at the end to thank Whitley for his trust in me to take on this project, to take on these audio interviews again. I did a podcast some years ago, and it feels a little rusty, but at the same time, really wonderful to be back in this seat once again. I would also like to thank Lauren Cutts for the intro music and the outro music, and Andrea Villiers on the gong. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.